0: The book became more than a novel. It was like a cause for me.
1: You're listening to the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host and resident dog mom, Erin Scott. If you consider your dog a family member, then this podcast is for you. Let's celebrate the love and connection we have with our dogs. Not only can a dog be your best friend, but I believe a dog can be a healer, a teacher, and an inspiration. This is a place for us to connect in the joy of loving our dogs, and also a place where you know you're not alone in the difficult times, or in the sadness of missing a dog that was an important part of your life. I can't wait to share with you stories of how the love of a dog is changing our lives and changing the world. This is Believe in Dog. Welcome to episode 36 of the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Scott, and thank you so much for being with me today. It's truly my honor and privilege to introduce you to today's guest, Kristen von Kreisler. I'm going to share with you some of her official bio because I want to make sure that I do her justice. Graced with her honest eye for detail and the depth with which she renders her canine characters, Kristen von Chrysler's award-winning novels have earned much acclaim for their wise portrayals of the ways in which dogs comfort, heal, rescue, connect, and bring out the best in their humans. She's considered a pioneer on the topics of animal emotion and morality, and her fiction and non-fiction alike has been praised by Betty White, John Katz, Mary Tyler Moore, and the Dog Writers Association of America. So those are some pretty incredible accolades, I would say, right? I have often said that a lot of people have a dog, but some people have their life changed by the love of a dog. And that's exactly why I wanted to start the Believe in Dog podcast, to share with you the stories of people whose lives have been changed by the love of a dog and taken them in new and different directions than they ever expected, all because this dog came along. And when I started looking into Kristen's life, I realized that's exactly her story. And I had to talk to her. I was so excited to talk to her because she started out as this English teacher who got kind of burned out and she started writing. And then there was this dog that came along. And we're going to hear about that very special dog today named Bee. And Bee ended up taking Kristen's life in a direction she didn't expect for several reasons, which we'll hear about. And Kristen eventually decided to change the focus of her career to start focusing her writing onto animals because animals have always been what have brought her so much love and joy in her life. And she's like, why am I spending my career not writing about animals, the things that I'm most passionate about. And so ever since she changed the direction of her career, you can see that she's had all of these award-winning experiences and she's getting accolades from Betty White of all people. And that's a pretty amazing life to be inspired by the love of a dog. And so not only is Kristen going to share with us this amazing story of how her career in writing about animals got started in the first place, but we're even going to go deeper than that. And I'm going to give a little bit of a trigger warning during the episode because there is a sensitive topic that we're going to talk about. But Kristen's here to share with us about her fourth novel, which is called A Reason for Hope. And this is the summary that I received. With her fourth novel, A Reason for Hope, Kristen balances timely issues of trauma and sexual assault with a heartwarming, deeply uplifting story of resilience, redemption, and a courthouse dog named Hope, a special yellow lab who's trained to comfort victims and witnesses throughout the legal process. So we're going to go there and we're going to get into it. Kristen's going to share with us why it was so important to her to write about this topic and why now. And we're going to talk about the ways that our dogs can be such a comfort to us when we're going through a difficult time in our life. I feel so blessed and so grateful that I got to have this conversation, and I can't wait for you to meet award-winning author Kristen von Kreisler. So we are here today with author Kristen von Kreisler. Hi, how are you? Oh, I'm fine, Erin. How are you? Great. I am. It's such a joy to have you here. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. I have so much I want to talk to you about, but I always love to get started with asking... If you were an animal person from the time you were a child or were
0: animals, uh, did animals come into your life later in life? What, what did that look like for you? Uh, I think I was in the womb. I was an animal person. <laughs> I was born on the feast day of St. Francis of Assisi. The patron saint of animals, right? Yes, which was always, I, I loved him as a saint. And then it took me some years before I realized, oh, this isn't just a random thing. I mean, I thought it was just a absolute message from on high about what I was supposed to do with my life. So even as a child, uh, when they'd take me to to Western movies, you know, and and Roy Rogers would put his spurs in the side of the horse to go faster, and I would cry and carry on, and my father would have to take me to the lobby. And, you know, so I've always been just super sensitive to animals and just love them.
1: That's so interesting. Did you have a
0: lot of pets in your early life? Uh, I had uh, always had fish, <laughs> tropical fish, and then um, when I was a very little girl, we had a German Shepherd mutt named Zipper, and then later we had a Doxy named Fritz. <laughs> so, and 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 kitties all along. We had kitties, and so I, I grew up with animals. I don't know what I'd have done without them. I mean, they were <laughs> so important to me.
1: Sometimes I'm sad that I didn't get to have that kind of childhood
0: experience with animals. Yes. Well, you're making up for it now.
1: I definitely am. (laughs) And so when you, you know, you grow up and you're going to college and you
0: get married, was it always your goal to have animals as a part of your life? Uh, I don't think I consciously thought that, but I just assumed. Uh, In fact, after I was married, practically the first thing my husband and I did was go and adopt a German Shepherd breeder at the Guide Dogs for the Blind in uh, California. And so it just was part of who I was. I knew I would always have animals. Did you
1: love German Shepherds because you had grown up with one? Or I know we all have like an affinity for a certain
0: breed maybe. Well, definitely I have an affinity for shepherds, but, um, I, well, no, I, well, I had the mutt when I was just very, very small who was part German shepherd, but my parents had a, a dog that was practically of mythical status in our family. And before they had children, they had a German shepherd named Jimmy. And I heard about Jimmy all my life. So I think maybe that influenced me, but I love German shepherds. This having a lab now is, is a big change for me. Oh, wow. (laughs) And then I know that you also had a special beagle that came into your life. (laughs) I did. I had two beagles. I had another beagle after that beagle.
1: And so I know that you kind of had also a little bit of a crossroads with your career, with writing. Um, So what was going on in your
0: life uh, when the first beagle entered the picture? I I was um, teaching. I've been teaching for some years uh, uh, college English. So, I got so that I couldn't even get out of bed in the morning. I was so burned out and I loved my students, but I just got so tired of teaching the same things and, and it wasn't creative enough for me at that time. So, I, my husband said, Oh, uh, you know, take a break, you know, try other things. So, I decided I would try to be a freelance writer. And so I was in the process of making that transition, and my husband also had changed jobs. So we were in a very uh, scary time in our lives because of you know all the changes that we were going through at that time. And then then there came the beagle. <laughs> and so how did that come about? Well, we were out walking one night, and it's a beautiful summer night, and uh, uh, just with Ludwig, who was our German Shepherd at the time. And so we, he he heard some rustling and jumped up, you know, just like he was going to attack the forest where we were. We were going up a winding mountain road, and this creature ran down from a driveway just and zipped across the road in front of us. And, and I could tell that, that, it, that it was a dog, and the dog had no clue what it was doing. It was running back and forth and zigzagging everywhere. So then it ran down into a gully. And I thought, well, we have to do something about that dog. And and my dear husband said, do we always have to be the humane society? (laughs) Because we were so, uh, you know, so distracted by so many other things. And I said, yes, we do. And I ran down and I picked up this little dog who just went limp in my arms and didn't didn't resist didn't do anything and and it, her little heart was just pounding you know and and I could tell there was something really really wrong with this dog so I climbed back up the gully wall hanging on to bushes and things and came in and brought her home and this is B uh-huh B Beatrice Louise <laughs> And so what did
1: you come to find out about B, and, and maybe where she came from?
0: Well, the, I, I, we put her down in the kitchen and she was terrified. She was just vibrating from terror. And I lifted her ear and I found this horrible tattoo in her ear. And so John said, well, oh, we can give her back. You know, we can find out where she belongs. And so I thought, well, I'm not sure we should do that because she was in horrible condition. Just horrible. So I, the next day, I called the Humane Society where I lived, and they didn't have any idea what the number was. And they said, call the American Kennel Club. So I did. And I read off this number, and the woman said, well, that sounds like that dog's come from a research lab. And I said, are you kidding? And, and I, what am I supposed to do with her? And she said, well, you could give her back. And I said, you know, no way am I going to return this poor little creature to a lab. And so she said to me, well, congratulations, lady, you've got yourself a new dog. And I did. <laughs> we had a new beagle.
1: You know, I i guess I like to think, or I don't like to think, uh, about the fact that it's possible for, for dogs and for beagles to be used in any kind of experimental research yes. situation. And yes. when I first read about Bee and about your story, I was so shocked by this. What um what time period was this that you found her?
0: Probably nineteen eighty uh five, eighty no, eighty three or something, two, one, something like that. It's been okay. a long, long time. I was just newly married.
1: Okay, so the, but but I guess I was looking online and even today this is still a concern. And I guess I like to think like we've come so far in society and this still wouldn't be happening. But I, yeah. I learned about an organization called the Beagle Freedom Project that's still yes. working to help end uh, use of animals and to rescue and rehabilitate animals from experimental research yes. situations. Yes, And uh, I'm going to put some links in the show notes for anybody who's interested in learning more about that. And also it made me, I, I have an app that I use on my phone to check products because I, I try not to support any kind of company that, that uses experimental animals or, you know, anti, you know, I try to do the anti-cruelty products. And so uh, I'll put a link in the the show notes also for anybody who wants those apps on their phones. Cause I think in the the day and age that we live in the best way that we can vote for the change that we want in the world is with our dollars and, yeah. and supporting the companies that we, you know, support their ethics and their, you know, missions in life. And uh, I just, uh, I hadn't thought about something like this before. And when I was reading about your story, I was like, everybody
0: needs to be thinking that, that this still, still happens. Yes, yes. And uh, that book is still in print. It's been over 20 years. And I'm just delighted that people keep learning and learn, you know, just as you have. That just makes me so happy that it's still alive, that, that subject. I mean, it's. I'm not happy for the animals, but that people right. are learning about it
1: and paying attention, right? Yes. So, tell us about Bee. What was it like bringing her and this little oh, dog
0: into your life? Oh my! I, it was the hard one of the hardest things I've ever done. I mean, she was terrified of everything, and when I say terror, you know, when a I, when a I, uh, fan blade is going, you turn on the fan and it goes so fast that it 's fuzz, and you don't see the blades anymore and She would shake so quickly from the tip of her nose to the tip of her tail, just you know in in motion, everything in her in motion and terror and shaking so uh, I took her to the to the vet and um to have him look and make sure she was all right. That was my first concern, and I remember he picked her up from the steel table and put her on the ground and he on the, on the floor of his uh, office. And he said, she's been used and abused, used and abused. And he said that three times. And so she was just pathetic. I don't even know how to tell you. So she didn't know what love was. She didn't know what anything was. So I, I took her out walking on grass and on gravel and on asphalt and, you know, just trying to introduce her to the world. I took her downtown so she could hear noises and, and, uh here smell the exhaust of a bus so I took her through a car wash you know just like the education of b and then uh the the real problem was that she had no idea about house training and so I made a a billion trips outside (laughs) with a hot dog, you know, and and if she went to the bathroom, I'd give her a piece of hot dog. And if she didn't, I wouldn't. And she'd look at me like you savage. How can you not give me a hot dog? But anyway, I I went through that and and it took two years before that dawned on her. So she wasn't exactly a quick learner here. (laughs) Wow. And then I, the main thing was I was trying to build a relationship with her. So I would hold her in my arms in in this rocking chair, you know, and try to talk with her and pet her. And she just didn't have a clue what I was doing and she'd just jump off. She'd try to get away. So I kept doing it and doing it. And finally months later, one day it was like, she thought, Oh yeah, you know, this is a good thing. You, you love me. And all of a sudden her little floodgates opened and the, Purest, sweetest love came out of her that I've ever seen. And boy, that was a day of triumph for me. I'll tell you, I was so thrilled. Yes,
1: yes. I can imagine we, in a smaller, much smaller way, we have a very fearful dog in our lives. And we had never experienced a dog as fearful as him. And he's this 80 pound pit bull that people look at and think is very kind of scary looking. But he, Came to us and was so completely shut down and had never really lived in a home before, and every sound would just make him pancake and hit the ground. You know, like the dishwasher, the furnace, you know, anything. Yes, and uh, and you know, it's I see on on social media sometimes there's this trend of like these amazing adoption photos where the dog is just like snuggling with their new family right in the shelter on the day they're adopted. And it's this beautiful, you know, picturesque happy ending. And my husband and I always look at each other like, we never got that. <laughs> but, you know, we got know. the dog that was so shut down and terrified. And it took months before we really saw what his real personality was. yes yes and uh so i just i thought you just did such an amazing job describing that journey with her and and even you know and it sounds like it was even a longer journey than even we experienced oh, and, you oh know, yeah
0: the important thing is don't give up right. people write to me all the time and i say just give them time and and you know that, that do- they want to turn around you know and be loving pets that truly they do but they're just too frightened And it takes a long time to build trust. It's not overnight, as you know.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I just thought that was such a, you did such a beautiful job describing that and and just keep you know, reminding people, like you said, like, just keep trying, keep trying, like the patience. And I was so, uh, I was so impressed by by that and just appreciate sharing that sometimes it takes patience on everybody's part, you know, to to kind of get integrated and get used to each other.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes. It's imagine being a, a beagle from a lab and suddenly you're thrown out to the world. I, I don't know how she escaped, but, you know, she had no experience. It'd be like putting us down on Mars.
1: Right. I
0: mean, just be yeah,
1: terrified of the world around you because your world had been, you know, this big. <laughs> you y- yes. Know. <laughs> In a cage. Right. All her life. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Did you ever find anything out
0: about where she came from at all? No, I, I made up a story in my heart, you know, about that she was rescued by somebody who was cleaning the cages, or, but I, I know we know nothing, and I surely wasn't going to try to track down that lab and find right. out about.
1: It. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I certainly understand that. <laughs> yeah. But she went on to be just become the most wonderful, sweetest dog. It sounds like.
0: Yes. <laughs> Just absolutely precious. I mean, she, uh, uh, some years later, I uh, had an accident and I hurt my spine. I hurt three, four discs in my spine, and I was in horrible, horrible pain. So I got all every all, everything I ever put into her. I got back from her at that time, and she came and would lie with me on the sofa. I, I uh, was for eight months lying down, thinking I'd never be able to work again, wouldn't do anything, wow. and she was there comforting me just the same that as I had done to her. So it all came back—the goodness and the, the kindness. They really do just seem to know how to
1: how to be there for us when we need them. <laughs> Indeed. When you were going through that that incident where you're being bedridden were you like were you consciously aware of like oh my gosh now all the tables have turned and she's there for me or was it something kind of after the fact that you were reflecting on
0: no i i knew even at the time my husband was traveling a lot at that time and so i was very alone and very depressed i thought you know i thought my whole life had ended i mean i really did and So I didn't know if I'd ever be able to work again, or I didn't know anything. And she was there, and I I just I talked with her all the time. You know that just was such a gift. And I did indeed think, oh, you know, this is just extraordinary what she's doing for me. So I was very grateful about that. And that was when I changed my whole idea of what I wanted to do with my career, which was an amazing thing. And uh, I I thought. Um, well, up until then, all I had cared about was to achieve and to succeed. And so I, by success, it meant f- I was freelancing by then. So it would be writing for better and better national newspapers and magazines. That was sort of my measurement. And I was clawing my way to the top. And I, when I had this, these months of lying there, uh, I thought, you know, this is ridiculous. And what's the meaning of my life? And that was, finally, it came to me that, that I'd always loved animals more than anything in the world. And I thought, well, why am I not writing about them? That's just crazy if, if they're the focus of so much of my life. And so that was when I decided that, uh, and I told B, you know, I'm going to align my heart with my career. And so that was when I decided, and I took this major change in what I was doing.
1: I love that line. I want to align my heart with my career that like, I feel like I want to have that on my wall somewhere.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you are, you're doing exactly that <laughs> with your life right now. And, uh,
1: I, I, uh, a lot of all of this came about with me after a journey with breast cancer Oh, was going through having my dogs help me through that experience and, and realizing kind of yeah, what, what do I want to do? What do
0: I want to put into the world? You know, I, I really related with that. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like we had parallel experiences Isn't in that regard. Yeah. But, I, and I've come to believe these horrible things that happen to us are often the best things in the world because from that uh, horrible, you know, pain, all the suffering, you know, I completely changed my life and I've been so happy ever since. Ever since. Yeah. And, and I expect you have too.
1: <laughs> in some way.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yes,
1: absolutely. And so, what did it look like for you when you make this change in your career? What did uh,
0: what did you start writing in, instead? Uh, at the time, I was uh, uh, working as a uh, well. I was writing for all kinds of people, and I mean publications. But I was also a staff writer at Reader's Digest, which in those days was a big deal. Yes, my grandmother and- always had that. On. <laughs> I know. I know it was, uh, and, and it had a hundred million readers circulation. Yeah. So that was huge. So I I thought, okay, you know, my propaganda about animals. This is my chance. So I uh, asked if I could write these various stories, and I I went and uh, followed a grizzly bear for a week in Montana with bear biologists to uh, show how they were training the bear to stay away from towns and quit terrorizing people. And it was just a, you know, a wonderful way instead of killing the bear. You know what they were doing. So I got to. Right about that. And I went to um, Tennessee and to interview an eagle that somebody had shot and its little wing was completely, so it couldn't fly again. And this man had uh, made a little harness for it and, and take, taken it flying uh, with uh, hang gliding. So this eagle was hanging from the, the, the wing and, and he would fly and fly around with the eagle. So I went hang gliding to see what it was like to be the eagle. <laughs> and so I started having all these wonderful adventures and writing about uh, the, you know, uh, just the beauty, which is, I think, part of my vocation as a human being is to show the importance of animals and their worth, you know, and their, their view of respect and love. So that's what I started doing. For, uh, I kept on freelancing, but I changed my subject. Those are just
1: some of the most amazing experiences I could ever imagine. (laughs) Oh, I know. They were. (laughs) They were. And so then you wrote your first
0: book. Is that right? Was that The Compassion of Animals? Yes. I started writing. uh, I decided that I wanted to write books. And so I uh, wrote two nonfiction books about that were stories of phenomenal things that animals did. And uh, and showing kindness and loyalty and courage and you know at the time that I was doing this, I would call professors, you know, and researchers, and they would say, "Are you you know, are you crazy? Animals don't have emotions, and the only emotion you could find for an animal on on the internet, which had just begun at that time, was uh, anger, jealousy, (coughs) uh, you know, all the negative emotions, but none of the positive." like love and compassion and kindness and and bravery and so that was what I decided was that I'm going to show the morality of animals and the the emotion of animals in these stories and so I couldn't interview anybody because they were all saying that's ridiculous they don't have emotions they don't feel one professor told me animals don't think that they're just following instincts they have you know and now of course 20 years later we all know very well that they feel tremendously and they think plenty. And so there are whole departments of animal emotion in universities now. So thank God the, I, I found all these stories. And in those days, there was no way to look on the internet to find the story. So I had to go to libraries and dig through magazines and things to find stories to write a book.
1: Yeah, I was so fascinated by by that and just because of growing up in the you know times that we've had now over the last 20 years and you can just go right on YouTube and see videos oh, of you yeah. know <laughs> the, yes. the kindness of animals uh, you know to each other to people and it was a really it was really interesting for me to to hear about that experience you would know, experience that that sort of the general consensus in the scientific community at this time was was co- the complete opposite of, of what we now know right, today, and right. that it wasn't that long
0: ago. <laughs> I know, I know, and it was a very lonely business, too, to be doing that, because I just felt like I was crying in the wilderness, you know, nobody understood, uh, but the books sold like crazy. It was like the world was starved to hear that message, and of course, everybody who had a pet <clears throat> knew that it, I was absolutely right.
1: Right, right. And so then you went on to start writing some fiction and some novels. Uh, was that always a, your goal to, to get into writing like the great American novel? Or? Not at
0: all. I never even thought of it. Uh, no, I was writing these non Well, after those two books about animal kindness and morality, then I wrote the book about B. And then after that, the publisher sent me a, a, a contract to sign for another nonfiction book of these stories. And I could not get myself to sign the contract. I just couldn't do it. And I so I, I thought, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. But then I thought, well, what am I going to do if I don't do this? And I thought my career, my whole career will be over if I don't continue on. And so I was walking down First Avenue in Seattle. I remember the exact moment when the lightning bolt struck me of this idea. And I thought, uh, if if I don't want to write nonfiction about animals anymore, why don't I write fiction about an animal? And, uh, you know, when I don't know if you do this, but when I really get a good idea and I know it's right and it's just like sent from the universe to me, I, it's like... Uh, I get chill bumps. I mean, it's, it's like lightning zigzags through my body. And I, uh, so I knew that I was on the right track. I knew that I was doing the right thing and wh- what I was meant to do. So then I started in uh, writing this, The Compassion of Animals, which became a national bestseller, I'm happy to say, but I had to write it seven times <laughs> because I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, it was all new to me, fiction. I mean, writing fiction was. So I started doing that. And so, what was your first novel? Well, it was about uh, uh, a woman who went to work innocently one day, and um, um, a man came in and shot her in her office. So, uh, and it's really interesting because I didn't know what I was doing. And I thought, oh, you know, there needs to be some sort of very exciting scene to grab people, the reader at the beginning. And get their attention. So that made all kinds of sense to me, but it never occurred to me that if I have it in the first scene, I have to somehow resolve it by the end of the story. And so that completely changed the direction of what I was doing. And so I, um, I, uh, from that, uh, then I I made it her quest to find out why he shot her. And then I wanted to have an animal in the story. So I had her, uh, a dog foisted off on her. Uh, to be, that had the dog had been abused and horrible things and she didn't want it because she be, was scared of dogs she'd been bitten as a child and so she was forced to take on this dog while she was trying to heal from being shot and so the book is about how they help each other heal and she ends up adoring the dog and you know everything works out <laughs> but that sort of became the pattern for the books that have followed
1: i I noticed i guess the theme is that all of in all of your novels that someone has gone through like a a traumatic or experience and and then is helped healed by the love of a dog. And I, I so related to that because of, again, because of my own experiences, because of how dogs have helped me heal from various things in my life. And, and even I thought, even if somebody hasn't experienced the exact tragedy or trauma described in the book, like that emotional journey is still so common Mm -hmm. with anybody and with anything difficult that you've experienced in your life. And I, I just, I thought you do such a, a beautiful job, like describing those emotions and and what that kind of internal dialogue is like in your head during hard times. Oh,
0: yes. Thank you. No, I, I, I'm more interested, you know, I don't care about the savage act that happens to my, you know, the people that I love in my books, but uh, what I care about is the resilience and the grit that people show to overcome things like that. And th- with the help of their dog, so that's uh, my books aren't really there aren't about tragedy so much as they are about triumph. Right, right, yeah.
1: So do you do you just love do you love the process of writing and uh, of writing novels? Like, are you excited when you're done with one? Are you excited to start <laughs> a new one? Which is like the most exciting part of that?
0: They, oh, let's see. Well, I'm always really glad to finish because by the time I finish, I'm exhausted and I don't want to think about it anymore. And uh, I, what is, I, I like researching. The actual writing part for me is very hard. I mean, it, it, you know, uh, some, some author said that every day he went to his computer and, and that it was like pouring blood out every morning to start writing. And, and it is. It's, you know, it's, it's a very uh, stressful, exhausting thing because you never know if you're going to be able to do it and if it's going to work out. But then it does. <laughs> and so everything is all right in the end.
1: <laughs> I I I know so many people, I guess, who um, or or even just in general culture, that like romanticize
0: writing, and so I, I was oh. so curious to see what what that's actually like. <laughs> no, that's uh, no, it's really interesting. My father was a symphony conductor and a composer, and he always said, "Oh, people come and they just act like he's some exalted person because he composes these, uh, you know, this classical music." And uh he said it's it's not any of that it's a discipline, it's showing up to do the job you know it's thinking and and and, and it's work you know it's not just uh, waiting for inspiration from on high that lasts about five minutes, and then after that you have to really start working. that is such
1: a perfect metaphor
0: for just life in general, <laughs> yeah right, it is yes, exactly
1: and so uh, do you write your books like back to back? Is there a time
0: in between, or you know, uh, what what does that look like for you? Um, I I uh, t- I'm taking time off now because I'm really tired. I realized that the other day that I just need to stop and be a flake, <laughs> which is pretty hard for me to do. Uh, and I so I am always very relieved when I'm finished, and I know that it's going to be all right. And and then then I think I try to have downtime one time between. Two books i had signed a contract for two books so i didn't have 5 minutes of downtime and that was really hard on me it was not the right thing for me to do so now i'm uh, just doing it at my own pace and it takes me years to write like this book uh, that a uh, reason for hope that that's just come out has uh, uh, it took me years to write that book like i've been wor- was working on it maybe 3 Years or so, and there are a lot of writers who crank out a book, several books a year, and I, I, can't even imagine that. So, talk to us some about a reason
1: for hope. I was so fortunate to be able to to read it, and just uh, what again, it is an emotional journey. Um, are you comfortable sharing the story about how you got the idea for the plot behind a reason for hope? <laughs> Hi, this is your host, Aaron Scott, jumping in with a bit of a trigger warning. I just wanted to give a heads up that as we discuss the plot of the book, A Reason for Hope, we're going to be discussing the subject matter of sexual assault. And if that's something that is very upsetting for you, you might want to jump ahead about nine and a half minutes in the podcast. But now back to Kristen.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a long story. (laughs) Well, the plot... uh, uh, i was I was having tea with a friend uh and so she was telling me about a woman she had met at a yoga conference who had uh met a man online and met him for coffee and just thought he was fabulous and was so excited and he invited her to his house just what happens in my book and then then uh the he assaults her he drugs and assaults her so uh that was interesting to me I, you know for some I, I just felt really bad for her so then Sometime later, I was having uh, dinner with two of my very, very closest friends that I've known for years and years and years. And we started, I was telling them about this woman. And we started talking about sexual assault, never having mentioned that subject with each other ever, which is, astounds me. So then it turns out that all three of us had been sexually assaulted, and one of them had stayed home from. Uh, hadn't gone home for Thanksgiving from college. So she was alone in the dorm and a man broke into the dorm and raped her. And the other friend got into her car one night and a man rose up from the back seat and put a knife to her throat. Can you imagine? So as only she could do, she kind of talked him down enough that she could open the door and run for her life, which she did. And she escaped. But her two daughters had both been raped. Who knew? She'd never talked about her daughters either. So there I sit, and and I have never there's completed rape and attempted rape. So I've had attempted rape. Uh, well, I can count for sure three times, and and also I've been, you know, just like every woman, I've been harassed and groped and things like that. So, uh, I, I, the main thing for that from that evening, it, the, I got the idea for the book from when, from the tea with my friend about the woman she'd met. But then that evening, it gave me fire to write this because I thought, why aren't women talking about this? It's just, you know, it's a hugely important subject for anybody who goes through that. You know, they're carrying it with them for life. And yet they don't talk about it because they're ashamed or because, uh, uh, you know, they think nobody will believe them or whatever. So that got me going about this. And I thought, you know, the book became more than a novel. It was like a cause for me.
1: Right. And when you look at the statistics of one in five women are the victim of an attempted or completed rape, that was yes. shocking to me. And yeah. I mean, that's twenty <laughs> percent. I mean, just one out of
0: five. I mean Yes, and, and get this. I, I just found yesterday, let's see, I, I wanna read it for you because it's so important, that eighty-one percent of the women in the United States at some time in their life will either be raped, attempted raped, uh, you know, harassed, groped, something. And this is from the National Sexual Violence Resource Center. So 81% is four out of five women. Yeah. And I, I think it's that common, but nobody talks about it. Well, of course, now it's changing, which I'm thrilled about.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful that that's changing. And like you said, I mean, it, Probably a hundred percent of the women I know have some sort of story. I was trying to think of the best way to describe it, and I came up with having your consent violated in yes. some way. Yes, um, which I honestly don't know that I would have had a language to describe it until these last several years, where we started talking more about consent. Right. Uh-huh. You know, because there have just been experiences that you have that were not what you. Wanted, but it does. You know, it might not rise to a sexual assault definition, but right. uh I. You know, so even to just have sort of the vocabulary to describe it was felt empowering to me. to be, you know, <laughs> because we don't talk about these things, and 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 then when you are thinking about somebody who has been sexually assaulted, and then there's that decision making, and and you again just did such a wonderful job describing this in the book of like, well do I want to even report this? Because now it's like being victimized again by the criminal justice system or having to sit there and tell people time and time again. And and what is that going to look like? And what questions are going to be asked, you know, of you? And is this, you know, I think we all have a tendency to blame ourselves for putting ourselves in these positions yes. in the first place. And, uh, and then having other people judge us for that. And, uh, just you know the the process that you describe in the book I was it's like every thought that like you would ever have it was like so exactly right. <laughs> right right right
0: when the first time it happened to me, I was in high school and innocently walking home from my best friend's house and down this street, and these three grubby nasty looking men came along in a car and they were driving along beside me. And I, I didn't know what to do, you know. I'd, I'd never had anything like that before. So one of the men jumped out and tried to pull me into the car, and that oh my goodness! So so it's more than not having anyway. So he did not get me in the car. Finally, I, I got myself in hand enough, uh, you know. He chased me all around this yard, and uh, so I, I started screaming. And this friend of mine was playing basketball up this up the hill. With two other boys from our high school, and they came running down and ran the man off. He got into the car and they drove away. But uh, it's more than a violation of consent. There's some sort of terrorism in it. That that to me is the ingredient. uh, uh, That that you know it's it's um, a power thing almost. That they they're stronger than you are, and they can do these things to you because they're men and they're stronger and. They know you won't talk about it. You won't tell anyone. I never told even my parents. I didn't tell anybody except my best no. friend that that had happened to me. Oh, wow. So you never even told your parents about that? Never, never. I was afraid they wouldn't let me walk anymore, you know, that they'd make me stay home. And uh, so, and they weren't the kind of parents that would be, um, anyway, I, I just, it wasn't the right thing to do. So I, but, but the, my point is that I think, uh, that violating permission, you know, they're, they're men that force on you, force themselves to kiss you or grab your breast or whatever. But there's, uh, there's this other element that, that, uh, it's just maddening that men think that they can get away with it. They know they can most of the time, but now they're, it's changing. Look at Andrew Cuomo. Right. Right.
1: It's, it's been a, uh, a relief in some ways to see just that the, the tides of starting to turn with with people feeling comfortable to come forward and to admit that. And, you know, that there's always been this, I don't know, stigma that like, I don't know why women think that there's something wrong with us. I know. know? I, I, I I hope that, you know, again, even just seeing it reflected in your writing, like that, even we're writing about it now, I think, you know, it's like all part of this, tide turning?
0: Yes. Yeah. Well, it's the same like the, my writing about the compassion of animals. You know, nobody believed that. And then now I just felt so strongly that the, the dialogue needs to be starting. You know, there are people like my best friends, you know, that I don't think people always have to report it to the police. If that's too threatening, fine. But at least talk with your friends. And because uh, I, I bet you every friend you have has had some kind of experience like that.
1: Right. And yeah, even if, yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to come forward to law enforcement, but yeah, tell yes. a friend, tell a therapist, you know, tell somebody that, that can support you.
0: Um,
1: yes. Yeah, I, I i am I'm happy to see all all of this going. You know, feel like we're finally moving in the right direction after an extremely long period of time where you start to wonder why it took this long <laughs> i know
0: <laughs> I know, but thank goodness women now the the women's empowerment women's solidarity you know look at what happened to harvey Weinstein. you know that that uh, women are getting together now and they're supporting the rules the laws have changed so much too. There there are so many rules, like that. how detectives can interview a, a woman, uh, you know, and I, they're, it's not, they used to be, they just bully the woman and saying, what did you do to ask for it or whatever? Right. And now they're very sensitive and trained to be. And and the forensic exam is, uh, you know, just very carefully done, sensitively, or supposed to be anyway. And, and like the women's survivors groups, meetings. I mean, it's just wonderful that there are all these avenues open now to, to make it better. And and the, the legal part is still very difficult. Uh, you know, I uh, I don't think they're, and I, I don't have an answer to that for what the solution should be. But I do know that women are being attended much more carefully now than they used to be.
1: Um, did you do
0: some research into that for the book? Oh, endless, endless. I spent a whole... Oh, probably four or five months just doing online research, reading countless articles and uh, learning the law, you know, learning all these things. And then I started interviewing. so I interviewed all kinds of uh, court dog uh, uh, courthouse dog handlers and um, the uh, the people, well, the judges, Prosecutors, police, detectives—you know all kinds of people—to get the different story, the different sides, and and people were wonderful helping me. Oh my goodness, I just was so thrilled by that.
1: And so in the book, it is a, a courthouse dog uh, that makes a bond with Tessa, and I I didn't—I had never heard of these kinds of programs until the last several years uh, about the courthouse
0: dog. So what, what did you learn about that? Well, they, uh, the courthouse dog foundation is in Seattle, right across Puget Sound from where I live. And that, that's where they were invented. This a uh, woman who was a lawyer, and I can't remember the story exactly, but she had a dog with her at, at a deposition or something and realized what a difference it made. And then, so then they started using dogs. Now it's all over the country. It's changed. So on the little island where I live there's a, a Northwest Assistance Dogs which is a program it's a, a organization that trains dogs to to be hospital dogs courthouse dogs and then service dogs for people with disabilities. So they uh It's just a wonderful thing. So here I am at the epicenter of this entire movement, and it was just a miracle. So the the director of the Northwest Assistance Dogs became just a really good friend. And so she introduced me to all the handlers. I I traveled around to meet them in different cities in Washington and to talk with them when I was doing research.
1: Had you known about that organization before you started working on it? Never heard of it.
0: Never heard of a courthouse dog. (laughs) Knew nothing about it. Um, No, I I tend to take on subjects I know nothing about, (laughs) which is interesting because I have to learn all these things.
1: Uh, But but, wow, yeah, that's uh, synchronicity. (laughs) Yes, yes, here I am. Yeah
0: yeah
1: that's so that's so fascinating yes was there anything that surprised you that you learned about the process of of becoming a courthouse dog are those dogs that are trained from birth or uh or bred or can that be any dog
0: that just goes you know through the program no the pro well i can tell you what northwest assistance dogs does so they they get they used to get dogs from australia who really even tempered, calm, loving, sweet dogs. And then they, they've started breeding their own now. Uh, And so they, so they have this supply of puppies and then they farm the puppies out to puppy raisers who treat, teach them how to sit and stand and do the basics. And then they are brought back when they're about a year old, they're brought back there and then they work with actual trainers. So for the last year my husband and I have been volunteering there to be oh. to help train them and it's a blast so my oh, favorite yeah. job has is to that one of the commands is to snuggle when the dogs go to hospitals or whatever they they have to get on the bed and snuggle with people so uh, I lie on a, a you know a pretend hospital bed and and the dog jumps up with me and they say snuggle and I have to be the snugglee <laughs> Which is just delightful. So I, I really enjoyed all of that.
1: Oh, that's so wonderful. <laughs> that yes. sounds like the best job to get.
0: <laughs> oh, it was. It's, talk about the ideal volunteer job. I was thinking you asked me about what I learned that surprised me, and I was thinking about that. And the one thing that uh, really amazed me is that the the uh, defense lawyers hate the courthouse dogs, and so they've made the, the reason is that if a jury sees a dog comforting someone who's testifying about an assault or whatever, then they think, well, the dog must be able to tell that 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 woman's telling the truth and they must feel sympathy for her if the dog does. And so so the rule is that the dog has to stay out of sight lying on the floor or, or, you know, around the feet of the woman and can't, or the child or whoever's testifying, and can't show itself to the to the jury. And and I heard one story about this lawyer pounded his hand on the witness uh, the the rail of the witness box, and made a a a, a pitcher of water spill. And the woman who told me about this said that she thought that he was trying to get the dog to stand up and show itself so that it would be a mistrial. <laughs> So nothing would surprise me about it. <laughs> <laughs> it was so interesting. And did the dog just stay put, even yeah. despite that? So uh, well trained, such beautiful creatures. I can't tell you what wonderful animals they are. And so are these uh, are these labs or uh, labs or or lab and golden mixes?
1: Okay, okay. I was wondering. That's that's always what I picture in my head. Uh, so yeah, so I've seen it. In like an interviewing, you know, unofficial yes. scenario, as well as like actually in the courtroom, where like you said, like the so the, the right. witness is like in that box up in front of of everyone, but the do- and the dog is
0: in there with them, but has to stay out of sight. Right, right. The dogs, like in my novel, had several. The uh, hope her name is had several uh, handlers, and so and that happens in real life too. The dog, one person is the primary handler. But then other people take the dog like into the to the survivors group meetings. The dog's there to comfort the women when they're meeting with each other. The dog's there for the detective. Uh, The interviews and depositions. And uh, then in the courtroom, and they're there for forensics exams sometimes, you know. So they're they're the whole process, and that was what was such a great thing for me because I could put hope in all these different scenes as the story develops, and, and I didn't have to wait for the courtroom, right, right. and the trial.
1: And I, I love just reading. The bond and and just how you describe like how the dog, you know, like there's something just so special and magical about how dogs can just kind of look into your eyes and, you know, make that connection with, with us and, and be such a healing presence. Yes. And and you and I have even just both talked about like the experiences we've had in our own lives of dogs being a healing presence. Do you think that? What do you think it is that's so special about dogs that, oh, that they oh. can heal? Are so healing?
0: Well, they're, they're first of all they heal us physically, literally. That I've found out that they they lower our heart rate and our blood pressure just by petting a dog, or uh, if they go to a hospital. Uh, the patients in hospitals, if they're visited by a dog, they report less pain. So, I mean, they literally do that. And then the other thing is, like you said, when they look in your eyes, that the the, the scientific term for it is attunement. So what happens is that your the dog is there and, and it can pick up, you know, dogs know what you're feeling better than you do. And they pick up what you're feeling and they get in tune, in sync with you. And so that is hugely comforting and then then also they really, really try to help most of the time, or they can try not always but but that so that's another major element for the healing, the psychological part of it that they're they're with you, and you don't feel alone like with b I didn't feel alone when she was with me, and I knew she understood what I was going through, so that's what that's that process. it really is just uh been a powerful experience in in my life, and
1: so it's so interesting to me that there's even science that that does yes. back that up and can describe all of these things. Yes, that's amazing. <laughs> yes, and even in the book, you know, it stood out to me that hope was such a healing presence, and it it wasn't like it was Tessa's own dog; it was right, like just a dog that was there for her,
0: you know, and and she knew it, you know, and and especially in the courtroom. Can you imagine being a, a survivor? of an assault and, and having to sit there in the courtroom telling all these people. And you know, that, that a lot of them aren't sympathetic at all and they think it's your fault. And, you and know.
1: facing, you know, sitting there right in front of the person who assaulted you and having to face them. I, I mean, know. that to me, that's always like, would be the most like horrifying
0: part. <laughs> it's what courage it takes to, to right. rise up and take up for yourself in front of the person who, Oh, it's just terrible to think about.
1: Is there something special that you think also about dogs and their ability to help us kind of stay present and stay in the, the moment or I, I guess that's like a big lesson. I always feel like, uh, I've learned from dogs is is, um, helping me with like with anxiety or something. They're just have a very grounding moment or presence to keep you in the moment. Yes.
0: And they, they do live in the present. I'm pretty sure, you know, they maybe, maybe they think about the past. Sometimes I wonder about that when I've rescued all these dogs who've had a horrible origin, then I, I, you know, you know that they're affected by them and so that they're still in their minds, but they, they don't dwell on it. You know, it doesn't seem to once they get, uh, back to normal, but uh, they also the, the reason I uh, one of many reasons I put dogs in all my books is because I think dogs have so much to teach us not just about living in the presence, but uh, present, but about forgiveness and and they don't hold grudges, you know, horrible things are done to dogs and they they love you anyway, and they you know, they they're just extraordinary that way, or they're they're so courageous, like be when i took her to the vet a year later after she all she you know she was terrified of vets in white lab coats or you know anybody in a white lab coat and after i'd loved her for a couple of years she she went to the vet and just stood there with great pride and courage and didn't shake anymore you know she she and i i just was so learned so much from her about you know not spending the rest of her life cowering, but but measuring up and being strong. And so I try to have all my characters do the same thing. And they learn from the dogs in the book. I, I really
1: that was one of my favorite parts of reading uh, your writing was was just seeing what how we can learn from from dogs. And and that's been something that has that I've I pay a lot of attention it- attention to in my life, at least more recently. (laughs) And, uh, and, and so it's like exciting to me when I see that, you know, reflected in other places, such as writing and (laughs)
0: like, it's not just me. (laughs) No, it's not you. (laughs) It's not just you. And the, the, the love that pours out, at least uh, I've found that if a dog is loved, the love you get back is just Profound. I mean, it's just so pure and so good, and not manipulative. Or, the dog doesn't want anything, especially except food. Just, (laughs) but just loves you, and that's a gift like none other. So, what uh, current animals do you have in your life? Oh well, I have an announcement. (laughs) I have a black lab. I've always had German shepherds and uh, six of them, in fact. And then my last German shepherd died about two months ago.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: one month later, I, I, my husband and I determined that we're not going to get another dog. We have to rest and you know grieve mm-hmm. this for six months before we get another dog. But my friend at the Northwest Assistance Dog Organization told me uh, one day, she said, you know, we have this black lab here. And <laughs> So she is being given a career change, and she was a wonder. She's just a fabulous creature, and uh, uh, my Bridget, my former dog, had had uh, only been gone about a month, and uh, the last thing in the world I intended to do was adopt a dog. But Ebby uh, is her name for Ebony, <laughs> and she is so you know I just couldn't not bring her home. I, I just couldn't pass her up. So uh the minute her little paw crossed the threshold of my house everything changed all the grief left you know and we still love and adore our last shepherd but it, having her to love and to watch after and she needs a lot of love now because she she hasn't really ever had a home before And so we're so thrilled. And and now I know not to wait forever before getting another dog. You know, it's no cruelty or bad disloyalty to the dog that's died, but but it just brings your life back together. What was her career change? Uh, Well, she was a courthouse dog. Oh, okay. Yeah, she, uh, that's what she did. She they uh, matched her with a handler that the the director told me it just was, was a wrong match, and she said it was the first time she'd ever matched her with somebody without meeting that person. She only knew her online, and so it just the the person must have been crazy. I mean, you know, because she's just the greatest dog in the world. <laughs> But anyway, they didn't want to hand her over to. Or she said she, the the director told me she'd hand her to another person, to an, another handler, if if I didn't want to take her. But I thought, no, no, I'll take her. <laughs> and so she's uh, very new to your household, then, huh? Very new. She's been here about a month. And she cuddles up in my arms. I'm the snuggly all the time. <laughs> so it's just so wonderful to have a dog that's so well trained. That was another just a huge gift. So that I didn't have to do uh, like rehabilitate. I, I don't right. didn't have to do that to her with her at all. Right. And every other dog I've had it had to be rehabilitated in one right. way or another. <laughs> yes. right.
1: So there's something I was just curious about. My first dog's name was Lucy, and even though she was kind of my husband's dog, um, you know, she always sort of had a, a preference, you know, maybe for him. She was so life-altering and life-changing to me that I guess I'm always, like, uh, if you've ever seen the the logo for my podcast, that's actually a rendition of Lucy, oh. and uh and I guess in my mind, I'm always like hoping that I do her proud, or you know, that she knows somewhere, wherever she is, that she has made this impression on me in my life and the direction that it has gone. And and I didn't know if you felt that way about B or about any of your dogs <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> that you know you hope that you're doing them proud and that they know about this uh, impression, lasting impression they've made on in your oh, life. Yes,
0: yes, and and you don't ever have to question and look at all the good you're doing with your life now just because of. Lucy. And she knows it on some level, she wherever she is, she's she's aware. And I, I feel that I owe it to all of these wonderful creatures who've come through my life, uh, that to to you know, to give back. My father used to always tell me, you know, you, you have to give back. You can't just hog up what you have to give in the world, you have to be giving it. And so I it's all because of the, the dogs and kitties and, and you know, the animals that I've had. And every penny that I have made writing about animals in the last 20 years, I've saved every penny and I'm going to do something. I haven't figured out what it's going to be yet, but to donate it for uh, back and give it back to the animals that, that, you know, got me on this path in the first place.
1: That's so beautiful. It's been such a joy to be able to speak with you today.
0: Thank you. It's been a pleasure for me.
1: Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Hugs and Belly Rubs Dog Health Journal. One of the most stressful times for me as a dog mom has been when my dogs have been sick. I've had dogs with cancer, with allergies, with mystery illnesses that we haven't been able to get a diagnosis for yet. With the Dog Health Journal, you can schedule your dog's daily meals, medications, supplements, track their appetite, water intake, and even poops. You can record their daily activities and note any changes in their physical appearance, such as lumps and bumps, or their routine. Since our dogs can't talk, it's our job as pet parents to listen to what they're telling us through their behavior and body language. With the Dog Health Journal, you can keep all the information you need to let your veterinarian know all in one place. With the Dog Health Journal bundle, you get your daily pages, you get your vet visit pages, you get a free 23-page ebook of the 12 changes in your dog to never ignore, and you also get tons of dog mom life hacks and general tips for keeping your dog as healthy as possible. So make sure you check the link in the show notes to hugsandbellyrubs.com for the Dog Health Journal. Your dog and your vet will thank you. So, how amazing is Kristen von Kreisler? I'm sure you are now going to try to fight me to be president of her fan club. It truly was a privilege and an honor for me to have the opportunity to speak with her and to share her story with you. I'll, of course, have links in the show notes so that you can go out and buy A Reason for Hope right now. It truly is a beautiful book and it's such an emotional journey that's well worth taking. And of course, I was interested in learning more about the courthouse dogs. The definition that the Courthouse Dogs Foundation gives is that a courthouse facility dog is a professionally trained assistance dog suitable for providing quiet companionship to vulnerable individuals in legal settings without causing any disruption of the proceedings. Facility dogs are working dogs that are specially chosen because of their calm demeanor and ability to work in a high-stress environment, thereby decreasing the risk of creating legal issues. When their workday is over, they go home with their primary handler and are off-duty. I found that these dogs were originated from carefully bred litters, that they have been socialized to a wide variety of conditions like public spaces, crowded restaurants, children of all ages, elevators and open stairways, cats, office workspaces, and public transportation this wide socialization from an early age produces a dog that is not stressed by public life as an adult. I found that there are currently 266 courthouse dogs working in 41 states as of February 2022. And that there are also courthouse dogs working in Canada, Australia, and in Europe in Belgium, England, Italy, and France. So I thought this was really interesting information. I had never Heard of this until relatively recently, and I think I had read about a program in Chicago. Uh, In some states, I found that these programs can look differently. For instance, in Chicago, the courthouse dogs are only allowed to work with child witnesses and child victims in the criminal justice system. So this can look a little different in each state where it's allowed. So I just found this whole process so fascinating to learn about, as I'm sure Kristen did too in all of her research. And uh, I really I really enjoyed that aspect of the book, and I I strongly recommend that you check out A Reason for Hope and find about the special relationship and how these dogs can, can help people through the criminal justice system and through some of the worst experiences of their lives. Sometimes we ask a lot of dogs, but it certainly seems like they always deliver for us. So this will wrap up episode 36 of the Believe in Dog podcast. Thank you so much for your time today. I hope that you will check out the photos that Kristen has shared with us, uh, which you can find on my website, as well as on Facebook at Believe in Dog Podcast and on Instagram at Believe in Dog Podcast with underscores. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast in your favorite app so you'll never miss an episode. And if you enjoy the podcast, I'd love if you took a moment to leave a five-star rating on review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help more people find the show. Until next time, this is Erin Scott, sending you hugs and belly rubs. The Believe in Dog podcast is a production of Hugs and Belly Rubs, LLC.